Amen. Thanks, band. Great job. Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you'll grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We've got uh, the words will be, or the verses will be on the screen behind me. Um, if you're new with us, want to say welcome. We are thrilled that you are here. Sort of our, uh, I, I like to say, our meat and potatoes. What we like to do, what we normally do around here is we preach through books of the Bible. And we currently find ourselves in Ephesians. And we are in Ephesians 5, as Zach mentioned this morning. And so we're going to jump right in. I'm going to read the verses that we find ourselves in. But before I do that, I just want to say Reckham Tech. I mean, come on, guys. I know we're, I know we're in Aggie land, but I got to say it. You, just can't, you can't be happy just a little bit when a Texas team wins. You Aggies, you're so, you can be so mean. Um, but I'm excited about that, despite your hissing. So here we go. <laughs> Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. I'm going to read 18 through 21, and we're going to dig in. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus and to you and I this morning. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. So this morning, here's what we're going to be looking at. Here's what we're going to be spending our time doing. We're going to say and look at where does our joy come from? Where is our joy sourced? Where do we find joy in relationships? We, uh, we're starting this, this marriage in the gospel, and you're like, well, that didn't really talk about marriage, but Paul is setting the foundation of all relationships right here in these verses. Paul is establishing for us the foundation of marriage, the foundation of being a godly husband, the foundation of being a godly wife, the foundation of being a godly uh, parent, the foundation of being a godly employee, the foundation of relationships even in conflict. And so as we move forward, Paul is going to address all of these things, and this is a pivot point, and he's setting the groundwork for us as God's people to say, uh, this is about marriage. This is the very bedrock. This is the foundation. This is where it comes from. So where is our joy sourced? Even in marriage, in relationships. Many of us in here, we spend a lot of time, maybe we chase physical pleasure. We think that's where we'll find joy. That's the fountain of joy. Some of us chase uh, relationships themselves. Like that will be, uh, that's where I'm going to be made complete and made whole and find my joy. And so we chase trying to maybe change our spouse or fix this or fix that or thinking if I can just get in this group of friends, then I will have joy. Some of us look to our kids. If I just can get my kids to act this way or behave this way or do these things or do those things, then I'll finally find some semblance of joy. We're all in this hunt to find it in various capacities. But we find that a joy that satisfies is right here in Ephesians 5. All these other joys are but shadows. They're all shadows. And Paul tells us that you find joy in the Holy Spirit. The fountain is the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be looking at marriage in these coming weeks. This week we're going to touch on it. Next week we're going to dive in. And a week following we're going to dive in as Paul sets the foundation for marriage. Paul is going to tell us that the foundation and the source for joy-producing relationships, joy-producing life, a life of thanksgiving, is the Holy Spirit. 
And so this is joy that's given by God, and it transcends all circumstances. This joy that Paul is talking about transcends all circumstances. Now, you may be thinking, you don't know my circumstances. This joy that Paul is describing transcends all circumstances. And so where does this joy that springs up in singing and in gratitude and even ends in this amazing place with such humility that we would submit to one another collectively as a church? It's sourced and its foundation is found in the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be laying the, the, the foundation. We're going to be laying the groundwork here. How the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Paul has a command here, if you'll notice, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a commandment in the scriptures that the Apostle Paul gives us. And then he has effects of this commandment. So be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to talk about the effects that that has when we are filled with the Spirit. The effects are are this joy that happens. It's singing, it's thanksgiving, and then finally it's submission. So you may be thinking, how does, what does that have to do with marriage? It just sounds like pastor talk, talking about the Holy Spirit, right? What does this have to do with my practically every day in my marriage? Well, this is exactly how Paul is going to set up the idea of a healthy biblical marriage. He said first, he's going to tell us. He's going to look at husbands, he's going to look at wives. He says, first, you must be filled with the joy of the Spirit of God. He's not going to give you like little cute tips and tricks, five easy hacks to a healthy marriage. Uh, it's, it's not going to be contained in a cute blog post. It's not going to fit on a coffee cup, right? There's, there's no five easy steps. So as we begin this series, we're calling it a series, but we're just continuing to follow, follow through in the book of Ephesians. Um, we're given these two one another's in this text. He says we're addressing one another and we're submitting to one another. Which leads to a very important point about the Holy Spirit and about the foundation of all relationships. That the Holy Spirit is not just for you. It's not just about you. Rather, what Paul's teaching us is that the Spirit of God, when it fills you, it has, a, it has an effect on those around you, the other people around you, in a profound way. That's why there's these one another's in here. We're addressing one another. We're submitting to one another, it says. So we as believers, we don't just have a personal faith. I hear this a lot as a pastor. My faith is this kind of personal thing. It is personal, but it's so much more than that. It goes beyond that. It is deeply personal, but it's communal. We've been saved as a people. God saves for himself a people. He calls to himself a people. That's what a church is, is the people of God, the gathered ones of God, redeemed and saved. And so the Holy Spirit filling us now has impact on the people around us, Paul's going to tell us. So our faith informs our relationships. We have a relational faith. And the Holy Spirit plays a vital part in that. This is, this is about community. Have you ever thought about the Holy Spirit indwelling you as, has this profound impact on how we interact with one another? Most of us don't think like that, but it does. Paul's teaching that to us right here. See, sin does the opposite. Sin separates us from people. 
When we, when we wander into sin, some of us uh, stumble into sin, some of us run after sin, but what the effects of sin is it separates us from people. It wants to remove us from people. It wants us to take a step back and get away from people to hide. But through Christ, we're made new. It wants us to press into God's people together. We're made as a new people. We're given new hearts. We're given a new identity in Christ. We're in new relationships with one another. And so this is an important section for us to set up the remainder of this entire book. So, like I said, moving forward, next week we're going to have our relationship with our spouses different because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. The week following that, the weeks following that, our relationships with our kids are different because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. After that, Paul's going to say, our relationships at work are different because of the Holy Spirit in us. And then he's going to go on and he's going to conclude with our relationship with the world is now different because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So this section is this important transition for us to understand. So 18 through 21, I think, should be grouped with 21 or with 22 and 23 in following. A lot, of, a lot of our Bibles kind of separate them out, and then we start this new section on marriage. You kind of have these titles that, in our brain as we're reading them, it's sort of, we kind of break them apart like that. But I believe that these should just be, go. They, they, this first part is a setup for the rest of the book that Paul is going to talk about. Um, why do I say that? I, this is important, because we're, we're going to get into some language uh, in the coming weeks that is like, People don't like talking about it, right? This is, this is tough stuff. These are, these are words that Paul's going to use, and, you're gonna, and we're going to be like, oh, I, I wish he didn't use that word, right? Um, like, for example, next week, Paul's going to, after this section, literally he's going to say, wives, submit to your husbands. This is not a verse that's put on a poster board and held up at the final four, right? It's just, that's more like John 3.16 or like run the race with endurance. We like those as helpful, like sporting event posters. No one is writing Ephesians 5.22 on that. It'd be just kind of strange, right? Because so many people misunderstand this. And part of the reason people so badly misinterpret this section of Scripture, so badly uh, misapply this section of Scripture, is because they unplug it from the rest of the verses, namely the ones that we just read. They unplug verse 22 from verses 18 through 21. That's how a lot of the Bible gets misinterpreted and abused at times. And this one has the, the potential for that to happen in, in, uh, in negative, negative ways for sure. But when you read verse 22 in context with verses 18 through 22, you realize that submission, this word that Paul uses, is something every Christian does, male and female. The very end, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how he sets up the next thing that he says. So every Christian is called to submit, male and female. And this is not something we do naturally. We do not like this idea. Um, we hate this word. This, the word itself, for, for any of us, we're like, oh, I don't want to do that. Right? No wonder we need the Holy Spirit. No wonder that's what he's talking about here. 
It's submission in relationships. And it is a direct result of the Spirit of God working in our lives. On our own power, we simply will not do it. We don't want to. We run the other way. So these topics, these things go together. So here we're talking about submission. And then we go to wives, where it says wives submit. And then he goes on to husbands. Husbands get it even worse. We're like, well, it doesn't say that about husbands. Well, guess what? He uses even a stronger word for husbands. He doesn't say husbands submit. He says husbands die. Wives submit, husbands die. How's that? You're called to die for your wives for their good, right? And then we go on to kids, and then we go on to work, and then we go on to all these things. So this is, this is an important part that if you just unplug it and then start reading Ephesians 5, you're just like, ugh, this seems just archaic. This is not how the world works today. This is, but this is so critical because the Christian life is about submission, a submission, our submission to God through the Holy Spirit. That's how relationships work. And it's a direct result of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the good and glory of God is beginning to play out when we live these things out. So you're like, well, that sounds good. But how do you know those sections go together? Maybe that is that like kind of pastor talk for kind of getting out of a hard conversation? No, here's here's we don't normally dig like so far into the original language, but I think this is worth mentioning right here for sure. In verse 22, this is very interesting. In verse 22, when it says submit in connection with wives, in the original text, in the Greek text, in the Greek New Testament, there is no verb in that sentence. The word submit is not there. It's not in that sentence. So it literally, verse 22 literally says, wives as to your husbands. That's what it says. It doesn't say wives submit to your husbands. It says wives as to your husbands. But we apply the verb from the previous sentence of that train of thought that it was just talking about because we in English can't write a sentence without a verb. It doesn't make sense for us. So we apply that verb from the previous thought of all of us submitting to one another out of reverence or even fear for Christ. It could be translated. Likewise, now, let's follow this train down the road. Wives, do the same to your husbands. I find that to be very interesting, and I think that alone helps us understand this, this connection to these two sections. So all of this is related. That's why we say we're starting a marriage series, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Spoiler, right? Like, what? You want a thriving marriage? You need the Holy Spirit. You need him working on your heart and mind. You want a healthy, loving, happy, mutually submissive where wives are submitting and husbands are laying their lives down for their wives for their good and the glory of God? You need the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. You need the Holy Spirit. And if you're not a Christian here this morning and, you've, and you got drug here, someone invited you here, and you're like, oh, cool, maybe I get a few healthy tips and tricks. We, we just don't have that here. What we're going to do is commend to you Christ. You need the Holy Spirit, you need Christ, you need the indwelling Spirit of God moving in your heart and life in order to have a thriving, healthy marriage. That's what the scriptures tell us. We commend to you Christ here. Christ saves, Christ heals the broken, Christ sends us the Spirit, and he gives us joy in relationship. 
So we don't have anything new to give you. Side note, if you are always looking for a church that is going to tell you they're going to give you something brand new, something new, we found this new thing, the new way to find happiness and joy, and it's, no one's ever discovered, but we discovered it, run away from that church. That's called a cult. Okay? There's, we, there's nothing new. We, we commend to you this, what it says. We commend to you what's old and what's been given to us by God. Um, there's no fancy new stuff here. So we need the Holy Spirit in our marriage. Um, we cannot do this on our own power. We cannot do it on our own power. So today we're going to be talking about the foundation of marriage, which is the Holy Spirit, less about marriage, more about the spirits. And in the coming weeks, as I said, wives, husbands, work, all those different things. So here we go. Paul is going to give us some exhortations. We're going to go quickly, followed by some effects of these exhortations. So verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine. He starts, you're like, man, this is a strange way to start a marriage series. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. So first, don't get drunk. Any questions? Good. All right. Got that. <laughs> and then he, so that's, uh, and then there's the positive. So that's the negative, and then it's the positive. And he says, be filled with the Spirit. John Piper says something very helpful uh, with regard to this. He says, Piper says, I think being filled with the Spirit means basically having great joy in God. The fundamental meaning of being filled with the Spirit is being filled with joy that comes from God and then overflows into song as he's talking about this text. And Luke would agree with that too because Luke says in Acts 13, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So let's think about some of these compare and contrast that Paul gives us. And, we, and how should we understand, so he's making a comparison here, right? He's using, don't get drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. How should we understand this, this comment here that Paul just made? How is understanding the Spirit linked with being drunk with wine? Well, there's a similarity, oddly enough. You may be, some of you, if you're super Baptist, you don't like that. The immediate answer is like this, right? Just as a person, when they are full of and are controlled by an external substance, it controls them. We we say they're under the influence, right? That's common language we use. They're under the influence of wine or whatever else it is that they are having to drink. Paul is making this comparison. Similarly, the believer should be full of and directed by and under the influence of the Spirit of God not this other worldly thing. Believers are to operate under the influence of the Spirit. So the Spirit fills us with the fullness of God, Ephesians 3, if you remember, which leads us to conformity with Christ, Ephesians 4, if you remember. Paul's building on these ideas. But that's where the comparison ends. The rest is a contrast. The rest are negative. When a person is filled with wine, they're out of control. Um, but a person that's filled with the Spirit is under control. Anything that dominates you, anything that puts you under its influence and leads you to be out of control is not of God. That's why we need the Spirit, because in our sinful nature, we're drawn to these things that lead us to chaos. The Spirit's working leads us 
to a life with God. It's the opposite. The Spirit produces, if you remember the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. When you are under the influence of this other substance, you are out of control. You've lost control. Okay, because we're talking about it here, this is not a sermon on not drinking alcohol, so I'm going to just uh, I'm going to address it right here. Uh, in the Bible, wine is not prohibited. All right, it's sometimes even viewed positively as a gift in Scripture. A couple of examples. Um, we got this one right here. No longer drink only water, but a little wine for the sake of your stomach, for your frequent ailments. Paul writes to Timothy. So it's like medicine. A sour tummy, have a little wine, right? So, so Paul gets at it right there. Psalm 104 says it this way. You cause the grass grow, speaking of God, for the livestock, the plants of, for men to cultivate. You bring forth rich food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen a man's heart, among others. There's other references you can go on here. Um, some of the old school Baptists, if you grew up like me in a Baptist church, they would say that, well, the wine in the Bible just didn't have alcohol in it. Right? You remember that one? Did you ever hear that one? I'm the only one. Oh, it's, I was, it was just different. It's a different substance altogether. Well, why is Paul saying don't get drunk on it? So this is clearly, it's not just grape juice, right? It's not, that's not all there is to it. So it's a, there's something else in here that's leading someone to lead an out-of-control life. So um, you're not going to produce an out-of-control life by a lot of grape juice. You'll just have to use the restroom a lot, I suppose, right? <laughs> so the command is not to never have alcohol. But here's, here is what God is going to tell us everywhere in the scriptures. It is never God's will for a Christian to be drunk. Never. Drunkenness is always a sin in the Bible. So let there be no question. Um, if, if you are someone that cannot enjoy the gifts that God has given to you uh, in moderation for enjoyment of which God created, and if it often or always leads to drunkenness, that is a sin and you're not to do it. You're not to partake in it. It's sinful. It's never God's will for us, his children, to be under the influence of anything that results in out-of-control lives that are unplugged from the Spirit of God. This was a big problem in Ephesus um, because it leads to so many other sinful patterns in our lives. So Paul brings it up right here. So therefore, he says, the Spirit helps us gain self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit makes you more like Jesus. So church, remember this. Um, what we need, what you and I need more than any beverage, what we need more than anything after a long, hard day at work, what we need more than anything than the first cup of coffee to get us going in the morning even, if you want to look at it that way, or a glass of whatever at the end of the evening to unwind. What you need more than any of those things, the scripture tells us, is God. Psalm 4 says it this way. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. He is the source of our joy. He's better than wine and any grain or any good food. He's better. So God's creation and gifts, church, can never give you what God himself can give you. 
if you just are only seeking the joys found in the gifts that God has given to us, he wants to turn your eyes and say, look to the source of the giver of the gifts. That's where ultimate joy comes from. Those others are but shadows. You don't need God's gifts. You need God. You need God. So we're thankful for his gifts. We love his gifts, but they are not God. They point to God. The filling of alcohol will never accomplish what you are hoping it will accomplish for you. It simply cannot. It never will. So Paul says, don't run to that, but rather be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Let's think about that, this, this idea of being filled. Paul is not giving us the option here. This is a command. He says, don't do this, but rather do this. So as believers, we are to be filled. So this is imperative for all believers. This is important, church. In other words, this call to be filled with the Spirit of God is not restricted to a select group of believers. All believers are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. This is not a sign of the deeper life. This is not a sign of the higher life. This is not something reserved for only the specially gifted in this area of spirituality. Okay? This is not for the elite Christians. This isn't like the Navy SEALs of Christians are to be filled with the Spirit. Or for just the pastors or those that lead in the churches. No, this is for everyone. This, this church that Paul's talking to, these were bankers, these were farmers, these were, these were businessmen, these were mothers, these were fathers, these were, these were teachers, these were everyday Christians, these were you and I. Be filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> this is not a command for the special elite. And this is also a present tense verb in the Greek, meaning this is something that we do all the time. This is something that we constantly need to strive for and long for and be filled with, right? We need to constantly be filled with the Spirit, not something else. Why do we need to constantly be filled with the Spirit? Great question. Do you wake up in the morning with your heart overflowing with thanksgiving and wanting to praise God? Oh, you do. Great. Okay, well, we're good then. No, we wake up and we're like, where's the car? Like, we're just, we're just trying to function, maybe... It's like the, you've hit the snooze button 10 times. You're just so like, you can't get moving. We constantly need the Spirit's help because on our own, we just are not bent this way. Do we just automatically want to wake up and we just are singing and we have a worship song in our heart? Do we want to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? No. We... We don't have constant self-control. We don't have abounding constant humility. We don't have constant desire and affection to praise and give thanks to Jesus. So we need help. So Paul says, be constantly filled with the Spirit. So application for marriage. Um, what does this have to do with marriage? How could you possibly love in a selfless way in your own strength? I would say we just can't. Because on our own, we just think about number one. We need the Spirit's help. How can we possibly put the needs of our spouse and love them in a selfless way rather than just do what we want to do? We need the Spirit's help. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We don't do this naturally on our own. We need God's help. Paul tells us in another letter that love is patient. 
he tells us that love is kind. He tells us that love doesn't envy and it doesn't boast. It's not arrogant and it's not rude. This is a hard one. And it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. We can't do this on our own. You can't pick yourselves up by the bootstraps and do that. We need the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit um, frees us from our addiction to ourself. We're addicted to ourselves by nature, and only the Spirit of God makes us selfless people that we can love and operate in relationships in the way that God would have us and wants us to put others' needs ahead of our own. So that is the foundation of a satisfying, joy-filled, God-honoring marriage. So this leads to the question, how? How are we to be filled? <laughs> um, well, I believe, well, first of all, it doesn't tell us directly. It doesn't give us a list, unfortunately, right? We would, probably would have appreciated that, but it's not here. What we do know through the scriptures is that God fills us. This is something that God does. There's no magic formula. There's no certain uh, order of things that we're to do. You don't, you know, kneel over here, stand over here, say this, do this, and then magically you have an infilling of the Spirit. That's just not how it works. God does it by his good pleasure. So it's not four easy steps to be filled with the Spirit. This is part of the mystery of God. I believe, though, when he is working in our lives, when we, when we submit to him, uh, when we follow him, when we obey the words of Christ, when we live in a way that God has called us to in the scriptures, I believe he begins to pour his spirit out onto his people. And if you are sitting here this morning, you're like, I just don't know, I just don't know if I have that. I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that even looks like. I would commend to you and suggest to you ask him. Go to him in prayer and say, Lord God, fill me with your spirit. I need your help. Ask him. Beg him. Ask him again and again and again. Ask him every day. Ask him every morning when you get up and ask him before you lay your head down at the, on the pillow. Ask him. Because it's God that gives us a new hope and joy and peace by the filling of his spirit. So what are the effects? This is where it gets... Interesting. What are the effects of being filled by the Spirit? Verses 19 through 21. Paul says that when we're filled with the Spirit, we then address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing and we make melody to the Lord in our heart, which is really good because if you're not a good singer, it's, all, it's just in your heart. Jesus always gets back to the heart, right? That's why we play our music really loud so we all can't hear each other. So we can all just sing and it sounds good in our own head. This is a good thing. Giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. So the work of the Spirit's life is renewed worship and renewed relationships. That's what the Spirit does. Singing, thanksgiving, and submitting. Wish I would have, could have put another S in there. But I couldn't get it. I couldn't figure it out. First, singing. We're a singing people. Right? We sing about God because he's too great just to merely talk about him. We're a singing people. Christianity, Christ's redemption, Christ saving us. We, we don't just want to talk about him. We sing to him. We sing about him. It swells in our heart. I'm reading The Hobbit to my kids. If you've ever read his works, these little hobbit creatures, many of us have watched the movies, 
they're these jolly singing people. They love good food and good dance, and they've got a song for everything. And so they'll just be walking around, and, and Frodo will just bust out in a song because he misses home, but it helps him remember. It helps him think about where he's come from. It roots him and grounds him in his realities, these songs that are just baked into his heart and soul. That's We, likewise, are a singing people. Songs communicate our hearts, right? We're commanded to sing here. We're to sing of his salvation. We're not just to think of his grace, but we're to sing of it. We're to feel it. It's supposed to make an impact on us, and it should lead us to song. In fact, when Adam met Eve in the Bible, the first thing he did is he wrote a song. Poetry, you have. Right? In heaven, <coughs> excuse me, it talks about us singing. We're a singing people. He is to be sung about. Songs <coughs> are sprung up out of a deep place of gratitude. Songs spring up in us out of a deep place of love. Songs spring up in us maybe out of a deep place of sorrow. Songs spring up in us out of deep desire. That's why we don't write songs about taking the trash out. We don't write songs about commuting to work. No one would listen to that. Those would be terrible songs because we don't care about those things. They don't make our hearts sore. We sing because God is so uh, wonderful. Right? And there's two different types of singing here. If you've noticed, there's... uh, Vertically and horizontally. So what's, what's clear here is there's a horizontal dimension and a vertical dimension to our singing. Listen, we sing to one another. This is important. So when you come to church and you sing, you're not just coming to a concert that sings songs about Jesus that you listen to. We are singing to one another. Singing in church is not listening to a guy sing songs on stage. It is singing together to one another. It has a horizontal impact. And verse 9, to the Lord. We sing to each other and we sing to the Lord. So when we sing, more than one thing is happening at once when we do it. Paul says we address one another with these songs. That doesn't mean that I go up to Josh and I just always address him in songs and bless the Lord. I mean, Josh would really like that. He loves singing. (laughs) doesn't mean we just always talk and sing songy rhymes. That would be just strange, right? No. But, but rather, when we gather as God's people together in worship, when we sing, we are actually raising our voices. Worshiping actually does something. It ministers to those people next to you. It means something. So we can't just show up here and... Uh, or we'll take this one step further, we can't have such a consumeristic mentality of church in the worship industry that we would go to a place simply because we like the way one guy plays a song and not the next. It's more than that. It's more than preference. It's ministry to one another. Right? This is what Paul's saying. This is important. That's how we minister to each other. You have a responsibility, church, in the scriptures, Paul is telling us, in corporate worship. How much does this change things in your head? 
Worship gatherings are not about what you can get. Worship gatherings are about you building up the body of Christ together. Locking arms with brothers and sisters. Singing of the goodness of God. The greatness of the gospel. The cross. The sacrifice Jesus has made. And when we raise our voices and our brothers and sisters hear it, it ministers to our heart because we think we're, praise God, I'm not alone. Praise God, someone else believes us because in this moment I don't, but I know that they're singing and I hear it. And my brother and sister is ministering to me in their song. This is why showing up to church is important. You cannot actively live out these verses on your laptop watching church service on YouTube or on a podcast. Those things are very helpful. I'm not demonizing or saying those are bad, but you simply cannot live out these verses corporately through technology. We are a communal people. We're gathered on purpose for a reason. It's crucial. The horizontal nature, then there's a vertical nature. It says singing to the Lord with our hearts. So we make glad melodies with our hearts, not just our voice. So you don't have to be a great singer, but does your heart sing? Is it drawn to him? Do you long to sing and make music? And is your heart soaring for the things of God? Is it an overflow of what Jesus has done for you? So an application for marriage. Uh, this, you're like, how are we going to do this? Singing has an application for marriage? Well, I think what Paul is teaching us about relationships and about the Holy Spirit is that uh, we cannot look to our spouses for something only Jesus can give us. There's a lot of so love songs that are just, when you actually read the words, they're almost silly about what that person is hoping that person that they love will give them, like their lives are devoid without them. How will I move on without, like, right? There are these great songs, but we oftentimes want to place a person in the place of God in our lives. Paul's reminding us, don't replace or put on the throne someone else where only God and Jesus can occupy that seat. He's the only one deserving of our songs and praise. It's not fair to that person you've put on that place. They can't live up to that. They can't do that for you. When you realize, church, that you were made by God for the glory of God and your ultimate identity in Christ is in Christ, then you will begin to not demand from your spouse something that is impossible. So, I think what Paul is trying to help us understand is the better worshiper you are, the better spouse you'll be. Your spouse cannot be what only God can be for you. We need Jesus. We need our hearts to be filled with the Spirit overflowing in song. That makes a great husband. That makes a great wife. When their deep gratitude and desires are met in the only one that can meet them, the God of the universe, revealed through Jesus Christ, when that person's heart is enthralled with him, that makes a better spouse. Then when you understand that and then you can humbly submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, you'll gladly meet the needs of your spouse and marriage and not just think about your own. We need a deep joy in God is what Paul is telling us. 
Is your ultimate joy in God? If so, it will lead you to sacrificially love those in your life. The better worshiper you are, the better spouse you'll be. The final result, as we're wrapping up here, of a life in the Spirit is mutual submission. Mutual submission. This is typically that dirty word in our culture, submission, right? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All believers are called to this. We're called to submit to one another. We don't do this naturally, but the Spirit does it for us. The Spirit leads us into it. We're placed into a community where we can submit to one another, mutually submit to one another. How do we do this? Well, here's some practical ways. There's innumerable ways that we can do this. Well, put the needs of other people in your church, in your community, on your street, above yourself. Uh, Teach the gospel to kids in the classrooms back there, submitting to one another, that I'll go and minister to your children because I want them to have the joy of Jesus in their hearts. Attend a community group where you can be known by other people. Submitting, mutually submitting to one another, caring for the poor, praying for the needs of our church, serving in the youth ministry selflessly, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If someone is arrogant, if someone is a constant complainer, if someone is brash, if someone is unsubmissive, they are not filled with the Spirit. That's the opposite. It's the opposite. And what you're going to notice here, which is just a side note, is this filling of the Spirit is a life of control, and it's not portrayed here as an out-of-control life. A lot of times we have these theologies that the indwelling of the Spirit of God produces running up and down the aisles and screaming and shouting or shaking or falling or all of these different things that we have seen. It appears here that this leads to a life of control, a life that is poured out for others. Interestingly enough, John Stott put it this way, the Holy Spirit is a humble spirit. Those who are truly filled with him always display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is one of their most evident characteristics that they submit to one another. I can't say it any better than that. Uh, Paul says it of himself. He says, I was a slave to all that I might win some for the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus submitted himself. So submission is not bad or second class unless you think Jesus and Paul are bad and second class. Um, So next week when Paul says, wives submit, you're in the company of Paul and Jesus in that same breath. And to the husbands, the word that Paul will use is even more extreme, like we said. He'll say, for us to die for the good of our wives. Lay our lives down. So the result of the Spirit is humble servant-heartedness. So when the Spirit is at work, we see that we sing, we give thanks, and we humbly serve and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and his glory and the good of the church. Let's pray, church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it directs us, that it guides us, that it's a lamp unto our feet. Lord, in these just practical realities, God, I just pray that your spirit would fill the hearts and minds of all of us here. 
Lord, we know it's not a formula that we just have to do certain things or say certain things. So this morning, I ask you, God, that would you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit on our lives? We need you. We need your help. Lord, we beg that you would do that. And Lord, when you give it to us, would you make us a worshiping, thankful people? Would you make us a people that are grateful to all that you've done? Would you make us a people that would humbly submit to one another out of love and out of reverence for Christ and all that he's done? So God, I just pray for this final song that we corporately, collectively would live this out together. Help us encourage one another as we sing these words of the truths of who you are. May we be worshipers. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship.